Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mountain Visual Podcast. I'm Blaine. I'm Anthony. And we are about to continue our conversation on the church. I haven't looked to see how steep our drop-off was when we started talking about the church, but I, I can't imagine the news is good. <laughs> That's a very cynical thing to say. <laughs> how, how, how are you feeling today, bro? Ah, uh, maybe a little down. <laughs> How are you feeling today, bro? I think our listenership doubled, but I don't check such things. I should. As soon as we talked about the glorious prophetic vision of the heaven on earth, of God of which we are bricks in the wall, but not in a bricks in the wall. That that sounds too much like a uh, Pink what, Floyd. Pink Floyd quote. So I don't like the feel of that, even though it's the right image. <laughs> Beautifully dry stacked stones. Yeah. Quick note, one of our board members keeps reminding Blaine and I that we should tell you, listener, that Mount Vigil is a nonprofit. And if you feel so led, you are welcome and encouraged to support the work that we're doing here. You can go to mountvigil.com and see the donate button. It's tax deductible. Also, while you're there, feel free to subscribe to our newsletter, which is right there in the navigation. I don't want to have to be our sound guy Anthony doesn't want to have to be our sound guy. So we're just trusting Jesus to bring on-time provision. But if you want the Mount Vigil episodes to still sound good, just know there's a very practical way that you can make sure that happens. I was driving over to this podcast and a poem came to mind as an encouragement for you listeners. This goes in the box of why does someone do what we're doing. Pick up their cross and start uphill towards the city of God. You know, take up the cross and get moving. And of course, it's a response to an image of the beauty of Jesus. But this, I thought there's this poem from Beekner that so captures how it feels on a deep level to begin to be arrested by the beauty of Jesus, that I thought I would share it with you just as an encouragement at the beginning of this conversation, which is, remember that you were also in a love story, that you were heading this direction today, but you are the bride of Christ, and your loving devotion in response to his affection is part of the motive power of your season. So here is, here is a beautiful excerpt from Beekner. You can all email me to hear where I found it. <laughs> I hear you are entering the ministry, the woman said down the long table, meaning no real harm. <laughs> Was it your own idea or were you poorly advised? And the answer that she could not have heard, even if I had given it, was that it was not an idea at all, neither my own nor anyone else's. It was a lump in the throat. It was an itching in the feet. It was a stirring in the blood at the sound of rain. It was a sickening of the heart at the sight of misery. It was a clamoring of ghosts. It was a name which, when I wrote it out in a dream, I knew was a name worth dying for, even if I was not brave enough to do the dying myself and could not even name the name for sure. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a high and driving peace. I will condemn you to death. That feels personal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
I'm getting flashbacks to so many beats in my journey with coming to terms with the church and falling in love with her slash dying to self in the process. Yes. For reasons that are easy to identify, but sometimes hard to describe, which is you just begin to love Jesus and love his way and the, you know, conviction, which is born from love, begins to manifest in your body and change some things. So, isn't that a good poem? That's a great poem. I'm glad that you read it now. I feel it will uh, need to be invoked at our next episode. So, this is our second of what I think will be three episodes on the church within our Story of God series. And our next episode, the reason I I feel like that poem is so great for the next episode as well, is going to be less about kind of a Bible study or a, a theoretical discussion of what the church is, and more of a story of what is our story in the church? What is our relationship with the church as a member of the body? And uh, that, that'll be a very different vibe to this the, the last episode in this episode. Yeah. And after that, we will have any number of episodes on the eschaton, the age to come. And then our Story of God series will be complete, for the time being anyways. Be excited. Yeah, I'm excited for the next episode. I'm going to bring this quote back in the right way then, but there's a wonderful quote on strategy and tactics from a military historian who says, you know, on the it's only at the tables of the generals where people talk about theaters and major initiatives and the big objectives. And when you get all the way down it's on the level of the platoon. It's on the level of the fire team that it just sounds like, get up and move that way. And then <laughs> someone objects to this quote, if we get up, Sergeant, we'll die. And the Sergeant replies, that's right. Move out and die. <laughs> and so it's going to be even better when I get the actual phrasing right. But something of that experience uh, is always the case when we make the transition from high level, looking at sort of the beautiful themes, yeah, kind of like an orchestra in the story of God. And then you kind of get down onto the ground level where you actually reconcile conflict with people, pray, take communion together, organize meetings, like, and things. Mm. It's just, it's, the reality is more gritty. <laughs> <laughs> and beautiful. Sorry, Gnostics. Is that going to be Clausewitz's entrance into our conversation first, or is that someone else? Uh, no, it's... Man, I, I cannot remember his name right now. Anyways, so in our series of uh, images and themes, we've talked about the church as the temple of God, and I think we talked about the church as the household of God. I was trying hard to remember what we talked about last time. It's One of these blurry. days, I want to teach you how to use the little podcast thing on your cell phone. <laughs> I just like seeing it show up in my feed and then I delete it and move on to the episodes that I'm listening to. <laughs> it, it is very nice to see it though and have friends send me screenshots with happy emojis. That reminds me, we haven't done a mom shout out for a while. So uh, Mrs. Bella, thank you for championing Mount Vigil <laughs> out there in the world. We love you, Mrs. Bella. We love you, Mrs. Eldridge. God bless we you. We love you, Jessa, because Jessa is kind of like our 
our you know mom cheering in the background as well. Jess is the only person who listens to this show on five times speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It takes eleven minutes. <laughs> she's I thought, she's the only person that listens to each episode five times. <sighs> okay, so let's start with the church as the bride of Christ. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's not a ton to say here. <laughs> Go ahead, Anthony. Okay. Well, to break the ice on this conversation, I'm just going to read Ephesians 5. The famous Jesus as groom, head of the wife passage. Ephesians 5, through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We're definitely not going to get into the human marital aspects of this and have that conversation, but... Oh, Anthony. (laughs) Um, This image of the church being the bride of Christ, there's different ways, uh, different kind of angles on that that we get throughout the scriptures. But first of all, throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom who will be returning for the bride. And throughout Revelation, specifically, we see a lot of uh, bridegroom and bride language. I was just in Revelation, but you keep going. I'm going to point out a couple threads from Genesis 2 and Revelation 19 and 20, but how how does this work? Give us an on-ramp into this idea. The main thing on my mind with this bride image, first of all, it will be helpful to realize, as we saw in this Ephesians passage, that uh, the church is the body of Christ and the church is the bride of Christ. Those are two major themes that very frequently meld together, very quickly meld together. But what I want to say about the bride imagery is that it might be the most eschatological theme in describing the church. It's the one that points forward to the return of Christ, who is the bridegroom returning, and uh, the eschaton, the age to come, its initiation will be the consummation this wonderful wedding feast where the bridegroom returns and finally lays claim to the bride and vanquishes all of his slash her enemies. Yeah. This, this is an absolutely huge theme. I wish uh, our roommate right now is, we asked him to prepare a lecture for us for our secret lecture series on bridal theology. And so... The stack of books on his desk right now um, is very exciting to me, but we were just riffing on all of the reasons why bridal theology holds the position, which is not very popular 
in Western Protestant Christianity. Mm. And without getting into those, I'll just say it's terrible to miss this theme because it's not only present in the life of the church, it's present in the entirety of the story of God. And in the beginning, we talked about the interior life of God, the Trinity, the community of love, where the parts of the Trinity are inside of one another, like rolling back and forth in love. And it's out of that self-giving love poured continually back and forth that the universe is generated. And then in the beginning, we get this image of God looking for covenant partners to join in the life of the Trinity in this intimate union out of which the future comes. One of my favorite intriguing instances of this was first pointed out to me by Father John Bear. So our one or two Orthodox listeners, there you go, <laughs> um, is in the wedding scene of Genesis 2. And we'll start when, so we'll start in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last. Just keep your ears open because this phrasing in this poetry is going to come back in numerous places in the book of Revelation. At last. This is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is me and yet not me. Uh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Much, much has been said about <laughs> verse 24 there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And much of it is helpful. The one thing I want to point out is that uh, this is basically never, ever true. Um, and in the culture in which this was written, it was certainly not true. Uh, the man does not leave his household. He remains a part of his father's household, and his wife comes to him. And if you don't get that, just begin leafing forward in Genesis and notice uh, who goes with who, Abram or Sarai? Okay, does, no, Sarai goes with Abram. Who goes with who? Um, and play that out. Rebecca leaves the kind of uh, Mesopotamian post-Ur region and goes on her way to Isaac. So what's just fascinating here is that you get, in the beginning, you see the end. And it starts, like, this is, this is the last verse before the fall. And so insofar as we talked about the fractal nature of the scriptures and how, you know, Genesis 1 kind of tells you the entire story if you unpack it. Genesis 1 and 2 does, and then, oh my gosh, by the time you incorporate 3. Well, we stop here in Genesis 2 before we go into the free fall madness that starts in Genesis 3, and you have a wedding scene. And you have a wedding of the bridegroom leaving his father to cleave to his wife. Who does that? Jesus leaves the father to seek out the bride. And the last image you get of paradise 
is the man and his wife naked and unashamed, where their bodies, the sum total of their persons, are transparent windows to the inner self, and there's harmony in relationship. And then this theme is going to pick up with Israel, which by the end of the Hebrew Bible is just going to be called the unfaithful bride. There's a couple of fantastic lectures by John Baer on this subject in podcast form, and we will link to those in the show notes there. John Baer breaks down his his unveiling of the mystery of, well, this never happens. What's the real metaphysical meaning of this? Therefore, the man will, will leave and so on. Oh, it's pedagogy. It's pedagogy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love the way he talks. (laughs) Though he's often uh, a little, uh, he's often impatient with his students. He's like, come on, keep up with me here. Give me the right answer. It's not easy to keep up with someone like John. I know. He's a deep man. A couple other images that go along with this. There's the parable of the 10 virgins, the wise virgins. Anyways, the, uh, there's the story, this parable Jesus tells of uh, a bridegroom leaving and virgins being ready, some virgins being ready with lamps full of oil for his return, and some being foolish and not prepared. And uh, this points again to this picture of Jesus at his return coming to consummate the marriage and to, yeah, take hold of his bride. It's one of the parables, it's probably the one that I think about the most, almost on a daily basis. This isn't the go and find the meaning of this, but Kenneth Bailey in, you know, a book that I cannot recommend highly enough is everything Kenneth Bailey wrote, but in particular, Jesus through Middle Eastern Eyes, he does a treatment of that parable and asks the question, what is the job, like, what's, what's the scene here? Where is the bridegroom coming from? What is he on his way to? Why are the bridesmaids who are in the story not where he was? And what's their job? What's their job? Where they are. And all kinds of lights will come on for you, but I'm not going to tell you because I don't have (laughs) Kenneth Bailey with me. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's lots of interpretations of that based on like what exactly we think culturally is happening here, but I think their job is to celebrate, to actually witness the bridegroom returning for his bride. Um, So we are, but also... um, I think I think it's kind of multi-layered and multi-purpose, like so many of the parables. Uh, Paul talks about the church as being a pure virgin in 2 Corinthians 11, 2. He says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And so we can see church leadership as this kind of fatherly role of uh, partnering under Christ to see that the bride is prepared for his return. Uh, another significant passage on this theme, Revelation 19, 6-9, John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are are the true words of God. So good. Now, a few things to point out about the bride. 
One that we just mentioned is that in the bride, you have the image of the covenant partner face to face with the bridegroom. And that literally in human marriage, it is the covenant of a man and woman that produces children and provides the umbrella of covering for an entire household. We talked about how the household was the entire network of relationships and all the material goods and all the plants and all that. Well, what is the container that is durable enough to manage and direct a household? It is a covenant between a husband and wife. So you have something that is fundamentally generative of a glorious future. And then there are just some details in it that are really wonderful to observe, meaning in that union and in uh, having children in particular, like in sexuality in particular, you get an image of the bridegroom who like bestows life, literally. I mean, this language, I can feel how people get squeamish and every time I use this, but usually like literally seeds life. And then it's the bride who brings it to fruition and bears something new. But to go, that actually is a picture of God's relationship with his people where Jesus initiates and the church bears and Jesus seeds and the church nourishes. The inner, it's a collaboration, but there are roles in which Jesus is primary. There's so much here. You're, my, you're setting off so many uh, little explosions in my brain with this. Uh, we, we weren't intending to get into the topic of sexual ethics and so on in this conversation, and we won't really in great detail, but I will say that getting this, getting the metaphysical meaning, the deep symbolism and embodiment of who God is and what he's like um, in the realm of our bodies and our sexuality is critical. Russell Brand, a comedian that I like a lot in so many ways, actually, I think probably he's changed his, his view on this. He used to have this joke at one of his sets where he would say, like, why does, why, you know, Christians are basically stupid about their sexual ethic. Why does God care about what we do with our any and outy bits? And uh, the reason why is that our bodies and our sexual union and our polarity as male and female, all the things like convey, univer- uh, convey divine reality. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm interjecting here. That's what it means for the bodies to be theological, mm. is that they reveal truths about God's universe. And I mentioned in a newsletter, I don't know if I mentioned it in this podcast, um, a great introduction to John Paul II's Theology of the Body is Mary Healy's book, Men and Women Are from Eden. I've certainly mentioned it before. Christopher West, another great source on this. But what Mary Healy, who is a heck of a scholar in her own right, points out is that it is the life-giving dimension of sexuality in sexual union that makes it true. And so to John Paul II talks about speaking the language of the body in truth. And the language of the body is spoken in truth when it reflects the ultimate reality behind the sacrament of union. Mm. And the ultimate reality is that love multiplies covenant produces life 
and that life is submitted to the design of Jesus. Literally, our covenantal capacity is surrendered as an offering to God. And so, to, it's just, it's been pointed out so many places. We, I, I didn't realize we were going to get into this at all. <laughs> all right. So, the gravity well is there that I'll say about is if you, cha- if you take away the life giving capacity, the sacramental reality of sexuality, really bad things happen. Mm. You break it, and then the separation, comes commodification, comes death, comes everything, you know, comes a culture of death, which views death as a solution to a problem. The, the materialist response to this, which shockingly many Christians will, the retort they'll give, even as Christians, is, well, what about couples who are, are infertile and never have kids and so on? And again, it misses the point. The, the spiritual reality is there nonetheless, whether or not human children are, are a result of the union, all all marriages, all men and women joining together in sexual union are embodying the divine, and therefore it is sacred, and therefore it must be kept holy. This is also, this is also, uh, I think the the kind of ultimate, as I see it thus far, the ultimate meaning of Mary. Uh, so often, especially in non-Catholic or non-Orthodox, you know, uh, rooms of the church, we because of our hangups about those other theologies and her place in those churches, we basically completely miss out on what Mary represents. And as I see it, Mary represents the church, and the the church should be always bearing forth Christ into the world, primarily the church of which we are each members, hopefully, and then also in our individual lives. We are bearing forth Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes and uh, impregnates us with Christ, and we bear him forth in, Lord willing, all that we do. God, so weird, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, it, it does get weird, and it, 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 it's, it says something about the nature of God that I've always uh, struggled with. Um, I remember reading uh, John Eldridge's book, formerly known at least as The Way of the Wild Heart, and he talks about the stages of a man's life. He gets to some stage, I forget what the order is, talking about man as a lover. And I remember like, realizing that John was writing primarily about people relating to God as lover in that section, and I just closed the book and didn't read that <laughs> at the time. But it, uh, it's something to meditate on, to receive that God reveals himself as one, uh, as the source of eros, as, as the life force, and, and one who has desire for his bride. Yeah. Can we just promise that we're going to come back and talk at length about sexual ethics oh, yeah. at one point and just talk about, once the whole story of God is in place... It should be easier to look at something like sexual ethics and to see where the stakes are. We can just throw that in our pile of like a thousand episodes we've talked about having once we're done with the Story of God series. It's just that we would be, I was going to say, we would be remiss if we didn't quote from the Song of Songs. Yes. Which, again, embracing, right now, I, my preferred term is a sacramental ontology, though it's beyond my pay grade currently to say whether or not it's as good to talk about a symbolic ontology. People are allowed to use words different ways, Anthony. They are. Um, so what I'm <laughs> going to call a sacramental ontology is where the rather ultimate realities are present in the symbols that depict them. So it's not like communion just reminds us, makes us think of in our heads Christ's sacrifice, 
the sacrifice of Jesus really is present inside the sacrament that is communion. Well, a sacramental ontology ties together, which just saturates the whole story of God. And so, as I have read over the past decade, people really swing back and forth between, um, hey, Song of Songs, that book is really about human sexuality. That book points to the union of Christ and his church. Which is such a joke of a... Con- of it's a, a joke like, of a juxtaposition. It's, it's either yeah. or, missing the point that human sexuality that, is about divine... Exactly. Life. There you go. <laughs> and, and it is not by being less sexual, but by being fully sexual, it's about divine life. And so in Song of Songs 2, you get this revelation picture. And it, listen, my beloved, look, he comes leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. This imagery gets picked up in the Psalms. This imagery gets picked up in the book of Revelation, where here's the bridegroom coming down from the mountain of God. And then it says, look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Anthony, uh, based on the shirt you're wearing again, <laughs> why does a wall matter in this imagery? I was looking at the quote just now. So I okay, I'm sorry. You missed it. Anyway, this is an Eden. This is a paradise image. Uh, paradise walled garden. Right. And so is this an interaction in a house and the sacred spaces and all that? Yes, it is. It's also about freaking Eden where this interaction is taking place. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. You can almost hear the Greek word gegonon in there. It is finished. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. Fig trees are highly irrelevant in church theology. (laughs) Uh, The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. Beautiful. It's it's so beautiful, man. I I have goosebumps right now. (laughs) I love how excited you get about this particular topic. It'll be fun to get into the uh, the episode dedicated to it. Appropriately, we can flow right from right from church as bride into church as body. These things relate, and I'll break it open with a Bart quote again from his book, which I, I at least referenced before: uh, church, "Church Dogmatics: <clears throat> An Outline." where Bart is going through the Apostles' Creed line by line, and he's responding now to um, the line, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. I want to say the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. So the Holy Catholic Church, and he's talking about the body of Christ. Bart writes, The body of Christ is identical with the new humanity which he has taken upon him. It is, in fact, the church. Jesus Christ is at once himself and his church. 1 Corinthians 12.12 since the first Whit Sunday, the life of Christ has been perpetuated on earth in the form of his body, the church. Here is his body, crucified and risen. Here is the humanity he took upon him. To be baptized, therefore, means to become a member of the church, a member of the body of Christ. Check out Galatians 3.28, 1 Corinthians 12.13. To be in Christ, therefore, means to be in the church. But if we are in the church, we are verily and bodily in Christ. Now we perceive the whole wealth of meaning which lies behind the idea of the body of Christ. Since the ascension, Christ's place on earth has been taken by his body, the church. The church is the real presence of Christ. 
Once we have realized this truth, we are well on the way to recovering an aspect of the church's being, which has been sadly neglected in the past. We should think of the church not as an institution, but as a person, though of course a person in a unique sense. The church is one man. All who are baptized are one in Christ. Galatians 3.28, Romans 12.5, 1 Corinthians 10.17. The church is man, the new man. The church is created as the new man through Christ's death on the cross. What? What? (laughs) Tell me more, Anthony. So as the body of Christ, the church is the revelation of God on earth and now made known to the spiritual powers as well. Something I wanted to fold into this conversation is... One of my favorite verses or passages about the church, Paul writing in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus is the apocalypse of God, is the full revelation of the Father in bodily form. And now the church is the body of Christ on earth. And the Father actually intended that his manifold wisdom and, and the mysteries of his revelation would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. So as we embody Christ in our gathering and in our form of life, all the things that the church is, we're actually revealing God to each other, to the earth, and to the spiritual powers. Hey now, a little plug, if you don't already listen to the show the Lord of Spirits, um, by our friends who don't know us. <laughs> uh, they have an episode called Bodies of God that I will also link to in the show notes. That's a heavy hitter one. Get that, ready for some like patristic philosophy. Yeah. It, it's very helpful, um, especially if like you've never thought through what a body is and what it means. Mm. Um, and... You know, it's interesting because a body is similar in some ways to a kingdom insofar as a kingdom is where the will of a king is done. Mm-hmm. And the body is where the activity of an individual gets actualized. So, lots to think on there. A uh, little eschatological point, okay? So, you and I haven't had this conversation yet, so it's fun to, you know, tease it live, which is... You know how there's a lot of ways to think about the Antichrist? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the typology of Antichrist and many Antichrists already come. One thing that I'm interested in is the two Thessalonians, man of lawlessness, mm-hmm. uh, the human of lawlessness, getting juxtaposed with the human, the new human of Christ, that is the church. And one way, teasing a future episode. Uh, that I'm, you know, pulling together threads and quotes in real time to think about the Antichrist. Because in 2 Thessalonians, it says, you know, the, the coming of, the, of Jesus won't happen until the human of lawlessness is apocalypsed, um, is uncovered for what it is. And, you know, there's a, the Christianity that I grew up inside of thought of it as, you know, some European leader is going to be revealed as 
uh, you know, the ultimate representative of the Satan at the end of the time, um, which maybe <laughs> um, there have certainly been many antichrists and there's going to be one last one. Mm-hmm. So that's no shade on that idea. At the same time, if you were to look around and say, well, what's the human of lawlessness, the humanity of lawlessness that's juxtaposed with the new human of the body of Christ? And it makes a lot of sense of the absolutely destructive, chaotic disorder of humanity in the world right now. So doing things like um, gender confirmation surgeries on children would be a great example of a, a humanity of lawlessness that has completely lost its mind, that will be revealed for what it is um, as Christ comes back. So, noodle on that for a while. (laughs) That's a heavy juxtaposition. This idea that going back to the Tower of Babel, that the people, as they were unified in pursuit of divine ends, were a body forming, like a man coming into existence. And God, in his mercy, disrupted that formation. But the more that humanity unifies and becomes a body under some spiritual headship, uh, they become the man of lawlessness. Exactly. And, And we, as we unify under Christ... And all the ways in which we are conformed through discipleship, we are becoming, we are the body of Christ. Yeah, I think we should see this very, very practically. It is, there are lots of senses of the word body, and then Paul is simply using the word body. And you can picture a man, and the head of that man is Jesus, and the rest of the body, all the parts of it are the individual humans collectively making up this body. And as the church does good works on the earth, we should see Jesus doing things. He is embodied and actively doing good works on earth. Yes. You said discipleship. This is such a great moment to just tee that bridal theology and being the body of Christ makes salvation by grace through faithfulness really clear, where if following Jesus is faithfulness to Christ, it just makes sense in terms of, well, what is, the, what is the bride's relationship to the bridegroom? Faithfulness. What does that faithfulness look like? Actually, it looks like an entire pattern of life and activity that is directed in alignment to a covenant. And so, if our, we work at our salvation via faithfulness to Christ, if faith is faithfulness to Christ— and we are the bride of Christ, it would make sense that the way that we actually do that is in the direction of discipleship, the direction of living our lives in alignment with the vector of loving devotion to Christ. Mm, That's good. So this body language in the way that we've talked about people together becoming a body flows perfectly into this idea of the church as a new nation, a new race, a new people. I think we've already read out of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, this Paul telling the former pagans that as uh, as people who have now become allegiant to Christ, you are now one nation with Israel, the people of God. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, which I believe uh, is the solution to racial division, first uh, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that word race is genos, which means tribe or family, 
Um, race is a good translation. And the word nation is ethnos, a people. And this is, I think, the last big theme that we wanted to cover, that uh, all people who become allegiant to Jesus are now a new ethnicity, a new race, a new type of humanity, a new humanity united in the one man, Jesus. More future episode teasing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. There's... During the first several centuries of Christianity and its persecution under Rome, you remember what the Romans called the Christians, who were, you know, um, in their bodies, a diverse group of people who were nationally a diverse group of people. They called them the third race. Mm. I like that. <laughs> and you get a little insight into how race gets thought of uh, across space-time and how being Roman was a race. But we'll have more to say about this in time. Anthony, you have just said this is the solution to race in our day. I think it's spoken to, again, in the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to end my thoughts with a final quote from the Lexham Press book, the Apostles' Creed, which I've read from previously in this series, and I'll kick it over to you to close this out. So uh, the author, who I'm blanking on, uh, his name writes, at baptism, again, this is in regard to the Apostles' Creed line, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. At baptism, each believer proclaims that the church is Catholic. The word simply means universal. It means that there's only one church because there is only one Lord. Though there have been many Christian communities spread out across different times, places, and cultures, they are all mysteriously united in one spirit. Each local gathering of believers is a full expression of that mysterious Catholicity. The church is Catholic because it is a microcosm of a universal human society. In the waters of baptism, all the old social divisions are made irrelevant. The church includes every kind of person, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Whatever defined a person before is relativized by the new defining mark of membership in the company of Jesus' followers. The 13th century Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas explained that the message of Jesus is universal because no one is rejected, uh, quote, because no one is rejected, neither Lord nor servant, neither male nor female. There is no social barrier that could exclude a person from inclusion in this body. The boundaries of the church are as wide as the human race. Skipping ahead, he writes, The message of the gospel is directed not primarily to individuals, but to this new community. God's plan of salvation all along has been to create one human society as the bearer of the divine image. In that sense, the church isn't just the way people respond to salvation. The church is salvation. The church is what God has been doing in the world from the beginning. It is a representative microcosm of what God intends for the whole human family. That is so good. Wow. I want to end by pulling some threads together. Insofar as being the bride of Christ is characterized by eager anticipation of the arrival of the bridegroom. Uh, that is the thing that makes our following Jesus eschatological. So you're listening to a podcast that says following Jesus through the end of an age, um, Lord willing, and hopefully the end of the age. Where that becomes to be really clear is when we talk about these points in relationship with one another. I texted you for this quote yesterday, but it's so good. Uh, from David Bentley Hart's book, Tradition and Apocalypse, which is a very dense book. Wow. Uh, we, anyway, we here's, probably don't agree with it, but 
this compelling idea is helpful. <laughs> this idea in particular from chapter six. And he's talking about for the first three or four centuries of Christianity. And he says, The guiding concern of most Christians was not some perennial wisdom or immemorial doctrine handed down from the past, but rather the rapid approach of the kingdom of God, the advent of the age to come, and the final advent of Christ as Lord of all things. Apocalyptic expectation and eager certainty of the imminence of the full and final revelation of God's truth in a restored and glorified cosmos was the very essence of faithfulness to the gospel. What does it mean to be the bride? It means, among many other things, that you are eagerly desiring the bridegroom to come. And something that's amazing about that is that Hart's argument in that book is that when the body of Christ eagerly desires Christ to come, we actually know much better how to live. It answers all kinds of questions. And if we anticipate the return of Christ as an event in the story of God before we co-create together into eternity and can see the threads, you'll actually know what to do with your money. You will. Mm. You will not do something uh, really weird. You might do some things that are radical, but Faithfulness to Jesus is radical, loving devotion. And so, I thought as a, our practice at the end of this one, we would simply join in the prayer of the church, join in the prayer of the bride, which is to spend a minute desiring Jesus to come, wanting Christ to come back and consummate the story, bring it to uh, its crescendo. So, it just looks like this. Lord Jesus, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come quickly. We want you to come back. We want you to come back and to not delay. Our hearts are set on you. We pray that you would encourage us in the sights of disappointment where we've had to endure your absence. Your absence bodily in this age is a difficult thing for your bride that loves you. So we pray, Jesus, that you would bring your bride together, you would make her ready, and we ask you, Lord Jesus, to come quickly. I believe this posture is the solution for the way to not go mad in the world that we're in. If you look out on the world and you see the nations raging and plotting in vain, you see humanity reaping destruction, and you, and you look in your own life and see personal tragedy and struggle, this posture of Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, is the right response. Instead of getting uh, angry and frustrated, uh, angry in a fleshly way and frustrated and just wishing that people would stop and... Uh, and judging and, and condemning and so on, responding to everything happening in the world with Lord Jesus come quickly is a sure comfort.